Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome to 007x7, the podcast where we investigate the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And uh, we welcome you to the first episode of 007x7. For those of you who maybe don't know who we are, we are co-hosts of the Alien Minute podcast. Uh, I'm a screenwriter, filmmaker, and teach film studies at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I was Mitch's student at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, uh, studying screenwriting, and I'm a screenwriter as well. And yeah, with the Alien Minute podcast, if you never caught up with us, I'm sure some of you did, but if you never caught up with us on the Alien Minute podcast, that was the show where we examined Alien one minute at a time. Uh, We went on to do Aliens and have done numerous other little supplemental shows covering other movies. Here we're, we're following a similar formula, only we're expanding it to uh, uh, talking about seven minutes of a movie at a time because seven's a very convenient number when talking about James Bond. It's right there in the name. And generally, the way these movies are put together, they tend to fall in seven to ten minute chunks anyway. there's It's kind of amazing that um, James Bond himself, as you will see in the next episode, turns up at about seven minutes into the movie. Uh, yeah. A little bit, a little bit after seven minutes. So uh, he will not appear today, but that'll give us something to talk about and and set up. We did at the beginning of Alien. Remember, we had we kind of noticed that things happened at the one minute intervals. We we kind of gave up on that idea trying to cover that as the movie went along. Maybe the pacing changed a little bit as far as those things go. But maybe with this, we can kind of see also how if there are little landmarks as the movie goes on in these seven minute intervals, just see how it goes. You know, to me, it's a, it, this is a great way to do a kind of granular analysis of a film without going too granular. Like, we're pulling back just a little bit, um, taking a close look, but from a little bit further distance. But And we'll also be taking a look at the books, and especially in the earlier Bond films that followed the books a little bit more closely. Certainly, some of them went far afield. But with Dr. No, it's a great place to start in terms of film adaptation, and so we'll be talking a little bit about what happens in the book and what additions or changes were made by the screenwriters and who did what and all that sort of thing as well. So in this episode, from minute zero to 6.59, it begins with the gun barrel logo and ends with Sylvia Trench receiving a card from the dealer. And in between those two milestones, we are going to meet some beggar assassins. We're going to watch Strangeway leave a card game only to be shot down in the driveway of his club, we're going to see the murder of Miss Trueblood at her bungalow. We're going to see all of that bad news make its way to the radio room uh, where trouble goes up the chain of command and someone is sent out to find a Mr. James Bond at a casino. And so that's what happens in right. the first seven minutes. And we're just going to dive in and kind of start looking at, at those minutes, including the titles, um, which will be a chance for us to talk about some of the key personnel 
in, in this and other James Bond films. Sure, and the, so the, the title sequence, we start with this interesting sort of synthesized electronic sound. I, I don't know techni- if it's technically from a synthesizer, but as a musical idea, so to speak, it's very early incarnation of this electronic music. So it's funny that you get it right away. The very first thing you ever get in a Bond movie is this interesting sound. Yeah, these electronic tones that then lead into this gun barrel logo, which, again, pretty radical for the day. Uh, it's the first movie that I can think of uh, that had a, a, a distinct logo and that really graphic design would play such a huge part in this franchise. And it would coincide with, you know, with what happened in advertising in the 1960s. Um, and so into this gun barrel walks not Sean Connery, but Bob Simmons, the stunt coordinator of uh, many films to come. And in fact, he would walk into that gun barrel three times. They would use this again for the next two pictures, and it wouldn't be until Thunderball goes to scope titles that Connery himself would appear in the gun barrel. But if you look closely in as we move into this world of you know, 4K and 6K, this high-definition resolution, you watch it now and you can see uh, when it that circle freeze frames and it wobbles a little bit because it's going through the optical printer. And that's not the kind of thing you would notice with a typical movie theater with the gate weave and the image being thrown through celluloid, but when we look at it on Blu-ray, you start to see some of these imperfections, which I would even go right. so far as to argue that maybe these films are overscanned these days and i'm seeing things that i don't think cinematographer ted moore expected that we would be seeing sure and you know more uh maurice uh, bender being the designer of the uh, title sequence here um came up with this uh gun barrel shot kind of on the on the fly as i understand it at, pretty much after he had designed everything in the titles this was son of a last last minute thought and he uh, created this pinhole camera to shoot through an actual, I think, a thirty-eight yeah. uh, caliber gun barrel. Used a sepia film stock to kind of wash it out. And, uh, yeah, certainly I don't think when he originally shot this, he intended for it to be 4K, 8K resolution. I'm sure that he would roll over if he knew that was the case. Um, but it's beautiful. And the, the originality of it is is very remarkable, considering it seems so mundane now in a way if you if you just look at it you go well yes of course i've seen this i've seen it parodied a million times but the time it had to be pretty groundbreaking i didn't know for years as a kid when i'd watch these movies that it was a gun barrel because the rifling of the barrel itself is so graphic that it just kind of looks like a a a really cool iris you know effect and so that's the other thing about it is that it and we're probably looking at at a single still frame i don't i don't know that he necessarily ran motion picture film through that pinhole camera it was probably a a still shot that he took and he probably did several exposures until he got it the way he wanted it to look and then as you when you see it in the film you realize that it's probably a still so as a child you immediately thought bond was shooting an unarmed person is that what i should take from that interpretation as a child you thought hey there's somebody just looking at bond and because clearly that's, he's murdering that's someone. That's true, because the blood <laughs> comes down. I never thought about it. I never thought about it that's like funny. rationally like that. As a kid, I was just like, oh, shape, gun, blood coming down. But I didn't piece those I mean, together. It wouldn't have been totally inaccurate of you to think that Bond was a cold-blooded killer. No. Like, he doesn't always shoot armed men. <laughs> that's, that's, so. that's true. You're right. You're right. So that then moves into these dots and... 
Bender said in an interview that he had in the office some stickers that were price tag stickers that were little round circles, and that right. that gave him the initial inspiration to create these patterns of, of circles. I assume then that they used old-fashioned cell animation, and so somebody painstakingly put those circles down, and then they probably colored them via the optical printer, uh, but it's really interesting if you think about that as being a cartoon. And then, of course, think of all the things that influenced Rocky and Bullwinkle for a start, in fact, with right. those dots. And, and you know, I think the assumption I had, and probably a lot of people had, you, we, we all associate Bond with casinos. It's just one of those things. You know, he's often in casinos in a tuxedo playing Baccarat. Uh, so I think I assumed that this was supposed to be a play on, like, strip, Las Vegas strip lighting or yeah. whatever, you know. But yeah. I... When you think about Dr. No, well, he's in a casino for a second, but it really wouldn't make sense as far as the overall visual motif of the film. It's really kind of, like you said, it's, it, it's, you could see how it would be somewhat random. It's just a design idea. It's not necessarily supposed to uh, speak to the film itself or anything that's in it. Wherein, as we'll find out uh, you know, months down the line as we continue to do the show, what happens in the film does become a big part of what's in the title sequence sometimes. And... Um, it just hadn't started here yet. This was more just a beautiful, uh, beautifully conceived graphic design moment. Yeah, with a, then another idea. At some point, uh, it's as if it wears out its welcome, and we dissolve into the typical Maurice Bender silhouettes moving and dancing you know, against colored backdrops, which would become iconic. You would think about Maurice Bender, and you think about silhouettes against colors and he'd go away for yeah. two pictures he will not he, john brown john will take over the titles for from russia with love and goldfinger and before you return to this idea of the silhouettes when we get back to thunderball so that kind of sets us in the times because there's the congo drums underneath it and so we get this sort of caribbean feel starting to happen with all those images and and a few more of the titles uh, pop across the screen and i just would want to mention that Ted Moore, the cinematographer, and Ken Adam, the designer, had then worked previously with Cubby Broccoli on The Trial of Oscar Wilde. And in fact, that Warwick company that Broccoli worked with, along with producer Irving Allen, uh, those people were brought onto the Bond film. Broccoli had fallen out with Irving Allen, who incidentally had been offered the James Bond books uh, earlier on and had said he thought they were terrible and nobody would ever make a movie out of them. And Broccoli obviously didn't agree with him, but he was working for Irving Allen at that time. So once Broccoli went out on his own, he made it you know, an, uh, his mission to try to get a hold of the Bond books and eventually was put together by Wolf Mankiewicz, uh, the screenwriter, the first screenwriter on Dr. No, was uh, put, put him in touch with Harry Salzman, who was also... Uh, trying to make a James Bond movie, and one of them, one of them had the rights, and the other one had the had the money. And Broccoli right. was hoping to not have a partner, but he did, in fact, have, have to take Harry Saltzman on as a partner, or vice versa. And the two of them obviously made motion picture history with Doctor No and created Eon Productions together. Dan Jack is the other right. production entity that was named after their wives, Dana and Jacqueline, and Eon standing for everything or nothing. Yeah, and we should point out. Just in case there's any question, this question I'm sure would be on somebody's mind. We will never cover a non-Eon production James Bond film. So just no casino. I mean, we may cover them in some fashion, not in the seven minutes at a time fashion, though. Um, I'm going to say that right. You can do that if you want, Mitch, but John's I'm not talking about. John's not going to talk about the comedy Casino Royale or or, no, the, or Never Say Never Again. No. Not gonna talk I mean, about we'll, we can talk about them sometime in, in a very casual way. But I'm not going to commit an entire season to them. That's what I mean to okay. say. Okay. Well, 
God bless you, John Engel. Okay, okay. we'll 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 take that right yeah. now. And and the reason that uh, Casino Royale was the out was an outlier, one of the two outliers at the time. The rights were held by Charles K. Feldman, and so he had bought those from Fleming, and so Eon Productions couldn't get Casino Royale. So there was no way they were going to be able to do the first James Bond book as the first right. James Bond movie. And then there were other storm clouds on the horizon because their initial desire was to do Thunderball first, which had just come out uh, in the press, 1961. It had just been published. But one of the things that they found out um, was that David Picker at UA, who also wanted to make the James Bond films and who fortuitously was the first meeting that these guys had when they went pitching it around, you know, and, and as story goes, closed the door and said, we're not, you guys aren't leaving until we have a deal. They wanted to do Thunderball. Picker knew it would be too expensive to do Thunderball. Furthermore, with a little bit of luck, they started to look at, and that day was the day that the book came out, the day that the deal was made, I remember reading somewhere, was also almost the exact same time that the lawsuit started against Ian Fleming by Jack Whittington and Kevin McClory. And they had worked with Fleming years before to come up with an original James Bond movie. It didn't happen, and Fleming unwisely took all of those elements and turned them into the book Thunderball. So then mm -hmm. McClory and Whittingham had a claim on it. They tried to stop publication of the book, but a judge said they couldn't do that, so they sued anyway, and they were uh, tangling up the rights to this really forever. I mean, they would be executive producers credited on Thunderball, and then they would continue to want to remake Thunderball for years and years to come. Right. Remake it once is never say never again. And and to his death, Kevin McClory was talking about remaking it again. So wow. he was hanging on to that with, um, you know, clawed fingernails. He was not going to let go. <laughs> so, so they set on upon the sixth book, Dr. No, to be the first Bond film David Picker says because he thought it was the simplest of the six. And it also boasted exotic locales and some of the things that actually Thunderball had going for it as well because uh, these are it's one of the books that's set in the Caribbean. And if some, of the, some critics of Fleming and of the James Bond books have observed that Dr. No is the kinder, gentler version of Live and Let Die because Live and yeah. Let Die was the second book. It's super violent. It's super racist. Uh, it's comp complex in the in the way that it's constructed, and Doctor No is really simple. And once again, Fleming is borrowing elements from a TV series that he was trying to make called Commander Jamaica that went nowhere. He mm -hmm. took story elements from that and put them into Doctor No, and so he never learned. Luckily, nobody no, nobody sued on this one, but yeah. Where, where Live and Let Die was extremely violent and super racist, Dr. No is only mildly violent and mildly pretty racist. racist. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's I wouldn't the, even say mildly. I would put it yeah, a little bit much. mildly. You're right. You're right. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, we'll definitely be getting into that. Well, today a little bit probably. Yeah, so that's that's some, some of the background in terms of how the, how the piece came about. They made it for about 300,000 pounds, which was close to a million dollars. And I remember talking to Jim Katz, who was working at UA at that time, and he told me that he delivered the telegram or the note, the memo, to Broccoli and Saltzman, who were in a crummy hotel room in New York City with no air conditioning, in their underwear, and he delivered the note to them that said you can make the picture in color because that was an issue about whether or not it was going to be black and white in color, it was going to cost more, blah, blah, blah. 
and um and he said that those guys were very happy with that news <laughs> they were going to they no were going to get out of that cheap hotel room with no air conditioning pretty quick so what do we think of james bond's future if this doctor knows black and white i mean i think so much of what brings it to life is the vivid colors and especially if you're going to shoot in a tropical locale yeah uh, how are you going to pull off jamaica and black i mean you could shoot jamaica in black and white but I don't know. I just feel like it would not have made the money it made. I think the color choice was was a very wise one. Yeah, definitely. The screenplay in these titles is credited to Richard Maybaum and Berkeley Mather and Joanna Harwood. Wolf Mankiewicz did a couple of drafts. He did a draft of Dr. No while Maybaum was doing a draft of Thunderball. And then they came back together. They worked together. This is when the famous story where Dr. No turns out to be the monkey of the evil villain as Pet Monkey and and cubby hit the roof apparently over that and so that's not how this is going to work eventually what happened was then um, berkeley mather whose real name was john evan weston who had also worked uh, with irving allen on a picture called um the long ships so broccoli knew him he came in and also did work on the script so they had story goes five kind of five different scripts and so Terrence Young was hired to direct the picture who had worked with Broccoli before. Broccoli says he hired him because he was a writer. And so mm-hmm. he knew that in addition to being a, a good director, he, he knew he could handle what needed to happen. Typical Hollywood story. They've got a start date, but not a finished script. And right. so the story goes that Terrence Young and Joanna Harwood, uh, you know, basically went, went away for a week and essentially did a cut and paste and rearrange and rewrite using elements from all of these different drafts to create the script that would be their shooting script with Dr. No, which would still have improvisation and things being made up on the fly. Wolf Mankiewicz didn't want anything to do with it, wanted his name taken off the credits or not not given credit for the film. When he saw the movie, he wanted credit. And apparently Terrence Young said, sorry, the credits are already shot. If you want to pay for us to redo them, we'll give you credit. And Wolf Mankiewicz said, uh, no, I, I don't. I don't want to do that. So yeah. he didn't get credit on Doctor No, and that would, of course, mm. made a big difference in his career. Conversely, the other credit that's missing is Sid Kane's credit, who was the art director with Ken Adam, and um, Bender just forgot, and he apologized. Story goes to Sid Kane, and Sid Kane said, "You know, I know it costs a lot of money f- to redo the titles. It's okay. You, I don't. I'm not going to." create a stink and cubby broccoli apparently gave him a solid gold pen for his being a good sport yep. so there you go oh. so that brings us to that takes us through the credits uh, some of the credits uh, in terms of the, some of the key players who would appear again and again in the bond films and we'll get to peter hunt in a few minutes too, the film editor and and who would become a second unit director and eventually become the bond director of honor majesty's secret service so I suppose we should talk about the music for a moment. From what I understand, the original idea was that the Under the Mango Tree song would be the title song and perhaps even be the Bond theme song. That was an idea that was floated around but was was shot down pretty quick, as uh, I believe Terrence Young stated. Right. Well, he's not always going to have a mango tree in a movie. You know, if you make more movies, you're going to want a different song. So that's where John Barry comes in, who never saw the movie apparently uh, until it was finished and um, and composed this music without having seen the film, uh, the the iconic Bond theme. Well, the iconic we Bond theme supposedly, and this is this always gets batted back and forth. But the story goes that Monty Norman 
had been hired to come write music. He was on location. They had him set up in a bungalow with a piano. He he came up with the basic James Bond theme, the the guitar part of it, you know. And then it wasn't until later that John Barry came in and reorchestrated it and added the the kind of fanfare part of it. So Monty Norman kind of came up with the theme. Barry reorchestrated it, and then most of the all of the underscoring in the film is Monty Norman. I'm remembering something now that I heard somewhere. Uh, and tell me if you've heard this: that Monty Norman was really riffing off of another song that he had written at he another was, time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm forgetting what that song. I heard that song. It might have been on the Art of the Score podcast that I heard this. They played the actual song. But now I'm forgetting. All this is coming to me as we record here. So sorry, folks. I don't have all the information. Yeah, right. But. So that melody was, there was a another, a very similar melody that had that Monty Norman had written for another show. And that then gets kind of right. turned into the main guitar part. And then I think the secondary part of it was, was what John Barry brought to bear and then did all the orchestration. But I think all the underscoring is still Monty Norman. It does not sound like a John Barry score at all. Right. And Barry yeah. himself said he was kind of horrified when he saw the movie because that one James Bond theme that he that they had reorchestrated and everything, they kept dropping it in all through the movie. And so when you watch the movie, it is like you can tell, man, they're they're giving it the hard sell. It pops oh, yeah. up a lot. Yeah, it's funny where you'll get these walking scenes. We'll talk about them when they come to. You'll get kind of these walking scenes where, okay, well, we're gonna he's going to walk across this uh, hotel floor, so we're going to just throw it in, and they play it all the way to the to the guitar, you know, at the end, the, the kind of sustained guitar chord at the end. And it always, to me, honestly, I'm always like a little, ugh, when I hear yeah. it. I, yeah. I, the, of course, it's an iconic theme. I kind of don't like it when it comes up in the movie as much. I think there are throughout the history of Bond. There's so much better music. Well, yeah, because once once Barry takes over, the theme gets just sort of woven in underneath Mm -hmm. the the, underneath the surface, and and he and those melodies, the the two or three melodies that comprise that, they become part of the architecture of a score. And clearly, the score for Doctor No does not have the James Bond theme as part of its architecture. Right, It's, it's something that gets stuck in. And that's part of the fun of this movie is like they're figuring it out. You know, it's like watching uh, a a really good pilot episode of a TV show that you realize certain things stick and other things don't. Right. And you have to wonder, I mean, they don't know that they're figuring it out. They're figuring out how to make this movie, you know, and and you got to wonder how conscious they are of, okay, well, this is what we're going to do on the next movie, too. I don't think they necessarily would have been. They were they were too busy making this particular movie and hoping it, they could pull this off. But then seeing that they did pull it off, in hindsight, you go, well, those things worked. Let's uh, let's keep that going. And so yeah. you get a lot of those familiar elements as the movies progress. So this title sequence is in three parts, right? We got we go from the uh, dot animation to the silhouetted girls, and then we go to silhouetted uh, beggars. Uh, walking three in a row <laughs> across the screen to the song Three Blind Mice, as done by uh, uh, Byron Lee and the Dragonairs, who were a, a pretty big Calypso act at the time. I think, actually, Byron Lee passed away, but I think the Dragonairs actually still exist, uh, as I understand. I'm not familiar. My my knowledge of, of Jamaican music doesn't really start until Rocksteady and, and Ska and stuff come around. I'm not a big Calypso fan, but 
Um, but down the line, we're going to actually spend some time talking about the music and the, yeah. and the Jamaican music in particular in oh, this sure. film. Once we when, once we get to Pussfellers Club, we'll we'll be talking about that in in more detail. So these three guys are walking along on a treadmill. Basically, they were that was mm-hmm. shot after the fact uh, against a, a you know a, a blank background and then right. incorporated into the titles. And then we do get this absolutely beautiful transition to Kingston. Beautiful, right. underpopulated, colorful Kingston on a beautiful sunny day of which apparently there were there were not many. They they fought the weather a lot uh, when they were shooting in Jamaica and to the point that they realized that they were going to have to leave and there was a lot of stuff undone. And so Ken Adams said that he left. He just left things in charge of Sid Kane and he went back to Pinewood to start trying to build sets with his already stretched budget. I think his entire art department budget was 100,000 pounds. Which right. was a third of the budget of the movie, actually. Yeah, we, to make this transition to these um, these three beggars walking, in, and it looks like they're like in the middle of downtown Kingston, correct? Yeah, like there's some traffic going on, and we get them going through. We get them in three places until they're finally at the club, which is uh, described in the book as being down the end of a road and kind of off. I want to say, I want to commend these guys for committing to this uh, blind man act, not to spoil it, but man, they start that blind man act way before they <laughs> have to. They're, they're all the way downtown, just in case somebody's watching. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this right. um, Queens Club was uh, was fictional uh, in the in the book. That uh, was not this was not shot in. It was shot in an, another location. But there's a really interesting line that. Fleming brings to bear in the book where he talks about this Queens Club as being a place that's probably not going to last in Jamaica for much longer and it will probably be smashed and burned to the ground and that's great foreshadowing for not only what's going to happen in the story but to the forward view of of, um, Britain as the fading empire and so I think that there's you know Fleming's up to it right off the bat in the book you know kind of telling us about history and telling us about place and telling us, us about England through his own particular prism. Yeah. From the point of view of Jamaica, we're, we're getting it like the Rastafarian movement is gaining steam. I believe the poverty poverty's reaching its peak at this time in Jamaica and unrest uh, uh, as a colony is, is getting pretty strong. And, and later you get your Bob Marley political attempted assassinations and, Things I think he was really seeing some of the uh, things that did actually take place coming ahead, probably from his point of view, seeing it as a very negative thing. But uh, and the book was came out in '58, so it had only been three yeah. years since the book came out that it was being filmed, and so in some ways that yeah. was another reason to, to choose this one as as one of the most contemporary of of the books. Fleming would be writing one a year for for twelve years. So from these guys, we do get to this Queen's Club, and we meet these gentlemen sitting around a table playing cards in the book they're described as a brigadier general of the jamaican defense fund kingston's leading criminal lawyer a mathematics professor and then commander john strangways Mm -hmm. in the movie we add professor dent into the mix so i don't know if that's sort of the mathematician as we know professor dent is not going to be a mathematician he's a geologist And uh, so they have slipped Anthony Dawson around the table with a couple of local hires. And so already the filmmakers are laying in the deeper plot of this movie, which 
Fleming does not spend a lot of time with what happens between the beginning and, and Bond getting to Dr. No's Island. And the real improvement, I think, of the of the screenplay over the book is that we have several characters who pop up as, you know, functioning entities in the movie that aren't in the book. So Strangways, they're playing bridge. And uh, as the book describes, Strangways is a very important part of their four here. So these guys are a little uh, disgruntled at his daily, important to note, daily leaving of the game. He does this at the same time every day, um, creating a routine. And yeah, we did, we name check the general only here, right? Um, right, he just says general is all he says, yeah. Which is always, to me, just classic British, higher like higher class. There's going to be a general about, there's always a major or a general, like in Faulty Towers, there's always the major that's that's running around the hotel. Any British situation, there's always seems to be a retired military man that re- represents kind of the higher class, the military class. So yeah, so he's he's leaving, they, they're grumbling about it, he's begging them not to cook up a hand, you can always tell when they do that. And he's on his way to this appointment he tells them about. In, in the book, he was going to get into his beautiful black sunbeam alpine convertible and drive out to the bungalow where his uh, assistant, secretary, and maybe lover, Miss Trueblood, is waiting for him. But in the movie, he makes it to his Studebaker, and before he can even get in, the three beggars pull out silenced guns and shoot him down, which is exactly what happens in the book as well. Right. So he doesn't make it out of the driveway. Broad daylight, assassination, and a hearse roars up into which these guys grab Strangway's body and toss him in the back of the hearse. And that also is from the book. So Maybaum and company, Young, everybody, the screenwriters are following the book pretty closely at, at this point at the beginning. Um, I, I, one thing to notice about the hearse when it drives off, if you look closely, you can see these big arc lights being reflected into the, yeah. into the windows, uh, windshields of the car, which, which just gives you a sense of how much light they're pouring onto the action so that they can keep those blue skies and that crisp, beautiful background you know, evenly, evenly exposed and, and as colorful as possible. And there were, there were a lot of lights being hauled around back in these days. The yeah. film stocks were still not fast enough, uh, so everything has to be lit. And that gives the movie a, a very old Hollywood look. It it's, looks like North by Northwest to me. And, right. which was a movie that was made just a few years earlier and was one of Terrence Young's and, and Cubby Broccoli's touchstones. They really, Cubby Broccoli was great friends with Cary Grant. He was the best man at Cubby Broccoli's wedding. Uh, he wanted Cary Grant to play James Bond, and Grant said only uh, he would only do one picture, and so right. it was a non-starter. But it has a very old Hollywood, North by Northwest kind of look to it. I do think we we might want to talk about some somewhat uncomfortable business here and that the other thing you know it's a matter of casting a matter of characterization from the novel and then into the movie is that our three assassins here in the book their descri- their ethnicity is described in great detail and uh they are chinese negroes as he refers to them and he created uh fleming created this portmanteau chigros to describe these gentlemen uh, kind of an uncomfortable word to say out loud for me, but um, it was very important to him in the book to describe that they were of Chinese and African origin. I suppose there's reason for that. We could t- we'll probably talk about more later, but I don't see that in the casting here. I don't see that they went out and found. It's kind definitely of hard to not. tell, I guess. No, they they definitely not. not. Thankfully, didn't. No mention of it was ever made. But it was a uh, one of those things. I've been reading a book about 
Ian Fleming's letters during the time that he wrote the James Bond books. And uh, he had a correspondence with a novelist named William Plumer. And uh, William Plumer would read his his early manuscripts and give him feedback. And that's where this came from. They, there's, a, there's an exchange where he's like, perhaps they have a local, you know, word for it, perhaps Chigro. And then Fleming comes back, yes, jolly good. That's perfect. I'll use that. So it is a created thing. And, and between two aristocratic white British gentlemen created uh, this term that thankfully, thankfully, none of that ever came up in the movie. Boy, that would have been rough. But of course, uh, what's so interesting is that, you know, this thing about Fleming's work is, is he, he, he thought he was being funny. Like, you know, that's, there was some criticism that his books were humorless and needed more humor. And, and I think he had his tongue sort of in his cheek a lot of the time. Um, why else would you have the British woman who's killed named Miss Trueblood when she's being killed by three, you know, mixed blood Chinese Africans? So so there's the there is this racism that's at work all through Fleming's work, you know, all through his books. Yeah, he very specifically states in the book that the Chinese African com- is a is, that's a strange combination of bloods. He like uses those words very specifically, maybe a couple of times. So then when we have her, uh, then true blood having an interaction with these men, it's a little on the nose it's, when you think about really it. It's really on the and, nose. And yeah. it's gross, you know. <laughs> and he, he thinks it's funny, I guess. He thought it was funny, but it's not. I mean, it's just it's just kind of wrongheaded and, and insensitive. But thankfully they knew. There was no reason to do that in the movie. I mean, there was really, that would have been a lot of shoe leather to try to, get us into that uh, uh, mindset or give us that information at all. So thankfully it's not there because boy, we would be talking about this movie in a much different way. Had they gotten into that stuff too much, there's enough to talk about later, but I'm not even sure she's given a name in the movie. So I don't think so. No, so, so right. sh- we meet who we know from the book as uh, Miss true blood up at her bungalow and she has a hidden radio set and there's even as she's trying to contact England and we hear back that that's that that's that's who she's contacting. There's a tight shot of of another radio unit with a a hand adjusting it and England is receiving you and we they hear her. The communication has started. And then uh, and apparently this the, the actress in the scene owned the house that they were filming at. And uh, Terrence Young said he didn't think it was necessarily a deal breaker, but she was quite happy to be able to play this part since they mm-hmm. wanted to use her house. She uh, did a good job. She did a good, I very think, good job. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and with her murder comes one of the another one of the things that defines these films as groundbreaking, because there are two things that happen. She screams. There are two very aggressive whip pans, and they're done in camera. This is not an editing trick. So that is violent, fast. The windows are broken. We see the guys with the guns. And then she is shot, and when she's shot, there's a jump cut where several frames have been removed from the time that the gun fires until the impact of the bullet to deepen the shock of the bullet hitting her body. And that was a choice by Peter Hunt, the film editor, who would, all through the series, bring a a faster, more aggressive kind of editing to these movies. And David Boardwell cites Goldfinger in particular as being, um, in terms of, cuts per minute an acceleration from where movies were at the time and eventually we'll get to of course the great scene in 
from Russia with Love, the big fight, and how fast and aggressively that is cut. But this is Peter Hunt's contribution right off the bat to this new kind of sex and violence that uh, is going to be both controversial and incredibly popular with these pictures. Right. If if you're tracking the evolution of of action cinema, um, if you want to put it that way, you have this is one of those landmark moments, I think. That you have your you have what Kurosawa did in the fifties and early sixties with some of his films, and specifically like Seven Samurai, Hidden Fortress, and then these moments where the editorial uh, Young and Hunt both did a lot to sort of brutalize the violence, where where we were trying to wash over violence a little bit. You could have the violence in the film, but you cut it in a way that softened it. Now they're trying to make it more impactful, and you get it right away with the murder of a woman, an unarmed woman in her home, presumably pretty harsh you know and there's blood when the when the body's turned over we actually see blood which is another beautiful red technicolor blood which is another thing that that actually they wouldn't do much of in these films you would actually see really very little blood over the course of the james bond series bob simmons said he wanted the violence to be clean for whatever whatever that means this isn't an unfamiliar scene outside of this has been redone you know this idea the whip pans i'm remembering now isn't this exactly how raw deal the arnold schwarzenegger film raw deal starts there's like a government informant in a home and it's almost shot the exact same way right there's all these assassins show up at this country house and it whips they're all outside the windows and the doors and they whip pans around and they break through the door it's just occurring to me now i think i think that's how i saw what raw deal popped up on amazon prime last night and i thought i haven't watched this since it came out so maybe i'll have yeah yeah, yeah, no no (laughs) but whip pans it's it's definitely on the low end the low end of schwarzenegger uh movies but right so so miss miss true blood is killed yeah, she's killed, and, and, and they uh, carry her uh, body off, and they go, another guy goes to the file cabinet and pulls out a file that says Crab Key and another one that says Dr. No, cementing who's behind all of this right off the bat. That doesn't happen in the book. And, in fact, what happens in the book is they pull out some um, presto quick start uh, fire starting material. You know, right. it's to start your bonfires and your grill fires. They pour gasoline all over the house. They set it on fire. They actually stuff her into a bag of Tate and Lyle sugar. It's an empty sugar bag that they have brought along with them. So here we got Fleming name-checking three products in about two pages. The the right. Sunbeam car, uh, the Presto fire-starting kit, and the Tate and Lyle sugar. And he maintains that he does this because he felt like it grounded his books. So we'll right. be spending a lot of time name-checking products here on 007 by 7. Let me ask you this. It's just a question that's just occurring to me. Why why the risky assassination of Strangways in the parking lot of the club when they could have just waited for him to get home? Why didn't they just wait for him to get home and do this? It's just occurring to me that this is a little bit of a... You a... are absolutely correct. <laughs> Absolutely correct. This they is, know, this is they clearly, fish in a barrel. They clearly know what he does every day at five o'clock. They clearly right. know where he goes. They could have saved a lot of time and trouble by just waiting for him I mean, to 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 get up there to the house. Yeah. No need for the blind man act. No need for the hearse. Even yep. you drive there yourself. You shoot them. You know before they can send any message. And yeah, wow. So that's the okay. ridiculousness <laughs> of Ian Fleming because it's in the book too. He it's oh, it's yeah. a. 
it's the craziness of these of these fantasy films you know and i think they yeah. are they're 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 tall tales and we have to remember that they're tall tales and that's probably why we love them so much yeah let it be said i have no problem with this <laughs> at all i'm just pointing it out because it occurred to me for the first time how it occurs it's occurring to me the for the first time now it tells you how I will allow myself to escape into these movies and not think about them too much. It's that's that's very very true. I think that in the book, the fact that this place is burned down is the is the complete circle that started by Fleming saying someday the, the Queen's Club will be right. smashed and burned to the ground. But that doesn't happen here, and instead we're taken well. through a nice dissolve to London at twilight that moves us um, to the radio room of of MI6. This is the first Ken Adams set that we see, and he wanted to keep it. Simple but high tech, and so they went and they got whatever radio equipment they could find for cheap, and um, built this table of of uh, some very nice social distancing actually between each one of the radio people. There's plexiglass. There's, to, I was going to point. You, I was definitely going to point out the plexiglass. <laughs> this set is beautiful. I mean, this is classic, simple but elegant Ken Adam. And, yeah. and if you know Ken Adam from anything other than Bond, and you watch this for the first time, you'd almost know it. It's just got that look. And and I love the analog, all the uh, the analog equipment. I love maps. Uh, yeah. Who doesn't love big giant maps on the wall? And then everything, the, the costume design here is wonderful. It's probably probably wasn't considered to be anything special at the time, but me uh, looking at those haircuts and those glasses. And yeah, and then I love and, the, it. and then this, then we have a beautiful woman. We have this beautiful intelligence officer passing on the note up the chain from one person to the next to the next, which it finally gets to the guy at the end who gets on the phone and says, we've lost contact with Jamaica. Uh, well, are you going to tell him or will I? So I don't know whether we're talking about, I assume we're talking about M. I'm somebody who doesn't mm-hmm. really want to be the one to give the bad news to M. But just if you watch it with the sound off, you get the sense that this is a very hierarchical structured in information travels up the chain, you know, like, like that's how intelligence works gets mm-hmm. to the guy who takes it the next step up to the next guy and it does a lot and it's and we never come back to this set which is another one of the hallmarks of the bond films is they tended to not go back to sets they let you you use them you see them and then you move on to another another location so as right. to keep the production value always escalating sets get bigger and bigger and bigger as you go on through the movie and we get a good example here of the classic like British Reserve too. Nobody's nobody's panicking in the least about this. Nobody's even acting. They're, they're talking about this all very. It's strange, but it's also very normal in a way. It's like, well, we go about our business even when things aren't going the way they're supposed to. Nobody's like, get so and so on the line, you know. Nobody. That's a very American thing to do. Here we get the re- nice reserve, and everybody's just professional and going about their business. Uh, and and I think that sets a tone for what we get from Q branch as we go forward in the in the, all the movies and so forth and bonds reserved cool as well. Occasionally we'll get a little high blood pressure from him here and there, but you know, for the most part in these movies, everybody's pretty even keeled until the action breaks out. Right. The action then shifts to this establishing shot of the Les Ambassadeurs Casino. Now, that's a real place, and uh, it's funny because if you go to their website, they say that the exterior was used in Dr. No. Now, and in fact, another another website, uh, whether it's theirs or whether it's a reviewer, I can't, I'm not sure, says that, that the scene uh, in Dr. No was filmed there. Well, n- neither one of those things are true. 
the right. establishing shot of the sign, maybe they went out and threw a red light on it and shot that on a wall. But that's as close as you get to any kind of a, a real exterior shot of this place. And then we move inside where someone is stopped uh, by, by a host at, the, at, a, at a table saying, are you a member here? And the guy says no, so he doesn't get to go in, but he's looking for a Mr. James Bond. And right. the camera then follows this host, Mater D, whatever you want to call him, through the casino, which is another Ken Adams set. That was a set that's built at Pinewood, which we're going to eventually see it appear again, redressed as a different set later on in the, in right. the picture. I did want to point out as a, a point of trivia about the name of this club and the signage outside. Uh, the Lesert Club is also the place where um, where Paul's grandfather plays Baccarat in A Hard Day's Night. I think they were clearly referencing Dr. No, because Ringo gets the invitation to the Lesert Club, which oh, Paul's grandfather right. steals and goes and plays Baccarat, and, and you get a very... You get a take on this scene. Is it a different location? I assume. Did they? Maybe, I assume they... it's a different location. But I wonder I if it's the set or the real location. I'll have to go. I look. don't know. It, it would be interesting to know. But yeah, um, yeah. But I think they're clearly playing off of this, and then having uh, Paul's very clean grandfather being the James Bond in the scene is yeah. uh, is yeah. a good bit of comedy. Uh, <laughs> but I did, just as a point of trivia, I wanted to point because as soon as I saw it, I hadn't seen Doctor No in a while. Hard Day's Night, I've seen a hundred times since the last time I saw Dr. No, and I immediately went, oh, the Cirque Club. That's where Paul's grandfather wow. goes. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I- I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna have to go watch now. That's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my viewing assignment for tonight. Oh, you, it should be your viewing assignment on a regular basis, for sure. That's, that's, you're right. That's absolutely <laughs> true. Well, we get to our first uh, gambling table, and they're playing Baccarat, and we meet a woman who we'll come to know as Sylvia Trench, which is the beautiful Eunice Gason in a gorgeous red dress. Uh, You can't miss her, and she is uh, handed a card on what I came to learn was called the palette. That's what that that stick is called. I didn't know that was what, what they hand your cards across the table with. And she asks for a card... And that brings us to the end of the first seven minutes of Dr. No. We haven't even, we haven't even shown that she's playing against somebody yet. We're right, just, we right. just go right to her. We know that somebody's looking for Mr. James Bond, but then we see Sylvia playing cards. Do we want to talk about Eunice Gason a little bit and her plight? Well, yes. Is Sylvia Trench, or do we want to save that? No, well, we should mention that because it's always good to ha- get a Star Trek reference uh, into the show because all right. roads lead to Star Trek. And, well, and I... She's the Yeoman Rand of the James Bond series. Right. In the sense that they thought she was going to be in multiple pictures and be this kind of love interest that James Bond could never quite, you know, they, they would, they, he would always be called, being called away from her. They do it in two pictures, but then that does it for her. And, and, I, and I'm not going to try to speak for Miss Gason's life. I'm sure she led a wonderful life and was happy. But this had to be a big letdown. Like there were, there was clearly this intention that she'd be this regular character in this big movie franchise, and then what ended up happening to her was she was apparently somewhat typecast. I can't say I've seen every episode that she did of these shows, but her ma- her only major credits afterwards are episodes of The Saint, episodes of Secret Agent Man, and episodes of The Avengers, which seems kind of like she must have been typecast a little yeah. bit. Uh, yeah. She's doing the same kind of stories, and. Uh, just that on the surface seems kind of sad to me. Now, like I said, 
she may have lived a wonderful life and not and been happy with what she, work she got. But to me, it's like wow, she had she was set up to be this big character in this giant franchise, and she just ended up you know being in a few spy shows. And I think her career pretty much ended by the seventies. If I'm mistaken about that, I, I I apologize, but I think that's true. Well, at least we get her in Doctor No and from Russia. Yeah, she's, and, 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 she's and she gets to be the first person to speak to James Bond, and we'll be getting there with our next episode uh, of 007 by 7. So it's a good good, good seven minutes to start the picture out. It, yeah. it does, its, does its job. It gives us the world. It gives us the tone. It gives us the pace, and it's just going to get better as it goes on. Yeah, and on a show note, we will say that um, we, we intend to have guests for future episodes. We wanted to start off just me and Mitch talking this out and setting the tone, but we should have a guest for the next episode and, and guests as the show goes along. Uh, very interesting people. We have some actors coming on, some people perhaps connected to James Bond world, some of our favorite past guests from the Alien Minute podcast. So we look forward to having those conversations and look forward to having you guys tune and in. some Bond scholars. Yeah, Bond, and Bond some, scholars, all and kinds some of Bond super fans. So we've got a good lineup of guests and this should be a lot of fun as we move through these amazing movies. Well, that's going to do it for minutes zero through seven. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll be back next week with minutes seven to fourteen. Seven, <laughs> seven to fourteen. To 14. Seven to fourteen. <laughs> yeah. And sure. and uh, I would also encourage you, if you haven't listened to Alien Minute, to check out that we look at both Alien and Aliens one minute at a time. And we have lots of extra episodes there at the site uh, where we also talk about uh, other pictures that involve aliens. We've also got a Patreon account. Uh, where we've been doing some audio commentaries for films and some special one-off episodes, including the Quadfecta, which is our search to find directors who make four truly great films in a row. So the easiest way to get to all of that stuff is to get over to one of our Facebook pages, right, John? Or through Podbean. So we're just going to stick the... We're going to keep the Patreon over there. So if you're a listener of 007 by 7 come over to patreon.com forward slash alien minute for our extra... Uh, bonus coverage over there. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>